welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. How is sexual violence facilitated by technology? Today I'm talking to Nicola Henry and Nicola is an associate professor and research fellow and principal research fellow at RMIT University Melbourne and she focuses on the prevalence nature and impacts of sexual violence and harassment focusing primarily on Australia and certain international contexts in this conversation we're talking about image based sexual abuse so non consensual sharing of images that can take the form of upskirting or what we know as revenge porn and similar forms of abuse it's a really exciting conversation and one that i learned a lot from but before we start i want to apologize that i was sitting in a semi public area so you might hear some background disturbances but i hope that doesn't take away from the learning so let's dive in Hi Nicola, welcome to Talking Research. How are you today? Oh, great. Thank you, Asmita. Great. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? Okay, so I'm a Vice Chancellor's Principal Research Fellow in the Social and Global Studies Centre at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I would describe myself as a uh, sexual violence researcher. More recently, my research has been focused on technology facilitated abuse or technology facilitated sexual violence and um including in that uh focus on image based sexual abuse also known as revenge porn mm. but i'm also a new zealander living in australia with my partner my two cats and 15 chickens <laughs> and i love yoga i love reading cooking i love animals and birds and i love spending time with my friends and family Oh, that's perfect. So, how did you get into researching sexual violence? I mean, um just just uh, to, you know, juxtapose the two, it sounds a lot less uh, chill than spending time with your chickens and spending time with your animals. <laughs> yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at Canterbury University in New Zealand many years ago. I was studying political science and my interest was always in relation to topics around gender. So, uh mm-hmm. I would take whatever subjects I could in political science where um gender was a focus, um which there weren't many at that time, but I would also do all of my assignments and essays looking at some aspect in relation to gender and politics. So that was really where the interest sparked, but in 1997 I completed my honors year again at the um University of Canterbury in, in political science and I um focused one of my projects looking at rape and sexual assault um and then I went on to do my masters looking at the um perpetration of wartime sexual violence so sexual violence in the context of armed conflict Then I came over to Melbourne to do my PhD and I focused my PhD thesis looking at the prosecution of wartime sexual violence at international war crimes courts. Um and I guess that kind of married together the the interest in gender and and sexual violence with uh the kind of politicization of um in relation to conflict but also in relation to the legal aspects. And just to just to add to that, I guess my interest in sexual violence um does stem, you know, it is a personal interest as well. I think um the majority of women have experienced some form of sexual violence or sexual harassment or domestic violence in their lifetimes and that includes myself and also the women I know and care about. So it is a very personal interest and I do feel as a consequence very passionate about it. I mean you mentioned revenge porn these words and this is as it turns out a problematic concept on its own. So what is revenge porn and um you know how does that tie to image based sexual abuse and why is it problematic so the term revenge porn uh came from media reports really it's a salacious term it's been useful in terms of raising attention to the issue 
of where images are taken or shared without consent, and that is intimate images, nude or sexual photographs or videos. But the term revenge porn uh, has, is mostly understood to mean uh, the sharing of nude or sexual images by a vengeful ex-partner. Um, however, we prefer the term image-based sexual abuse or image-based abuse because it's, it's not a salacious term. It um, captures a, a much broader range of behaviours. Um, it also captures a much broader range of motivations for when people do take or share nude or sexual images without consent. So, for example, the term revenge porn focuses on motivations of uh, vengeance and revenge. Um, but mm. people are also sharing nude or sexual images without consent in order to obtain sexual gratification, in order to prove themselves to a group of their peers, in order to make money, in order to control uh, another person through blackmail and extortion, for example. And, and, and finally, the, the, the reason why we prefer the term image-based sexual abuse as opposed to revenge porn, we argue that the term revenge porn focuses attention on the content of the image rather than on the abusive actions of perpetrators. And I guess that's another reason why we prefer image-based sexual abuse in the work that we do because it names the abuse, uh, whereas revenge porn, you know, it sounds like it kind of likens non-consensual images to the production of commercial pornography. And mm. um, some of those images are not, uh, that are being shared or taken without consent are not actually necessarily pornographic. They might be uh, someone in the shower, for example, someone, you know, bathing. So, so I think image-based sexual abuse does do better justice to experiences, victim-survivor experiences of these types of behaviours. Hmm. So basically, it's a non-consensual image or image circulation, uh, and it's usually used to threaten or blackmail someone. Can I just add to that too, image-based sexual abuse, we argue, includes three main behaviours. One is the non-consensual taking of a nude or sexual mm-hmm. image. So that could be like someone on public transport, on a train or a bus, uh, taking photographs up a woman's skirt, also known as upskirting. Um, but it, it could also include a partner or a friend secretly installing cameras in a bedroom or in a shower or bathroom. The second behaviour is the non-consensual sharing of noodle sexual images, and that's kind of really what a lot of the attention has been focused on. Um, and that might include um, images being distributed on via mobile phone or via a social media or porn- pornographic website. And the third behaviour is the threats to share noodle sexual images, often referred to as sextortion. So this might involve the perpetrator um, sending a, a, a text or saying something in person or sending a message somehow. To, to say to the victim, I've got images of you and I'll share them if you don't do X, Y, and Z. So they're the three behaviours that make up image-based sexual abuse. And you told us what upskirting is and there's also downblousing, which is, um, is, it, is it taking a picture of someone's chest? I don't know how to put it, from the top and the, that person doesn't know, right? Yeah, well, they, um, yeah, I mean, it could, it, it, it is what it kind of say, well, suggests, I know it's a little yeah. bit of a, a weird term given that a lot of women don't wear blouses. Um, yeah. But I guess, yeah, it's, um, it's someone uh, taking a photograph or a video down a woman's top and it could be in a public place or it could be in a private place. It could be that you were at a party and someone secretly, or it might not even be secretly, but they might secretly or otherwise take a, a photograph or a video of your cleavage essentially. I remember talking to, I was talking to a friend recently, a school friend, and we were talking about that, that we'd heard of instances in school where someone had, um, you know, taken a photo of uh, girls walking up a staircase or threatened to do that. And, you know, when you're listening to such things, you obviously, like, it sounds wrong, but you don't quite realize that it's something that can be punishable by law. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about um, the legal framework? And um, I mean, what do we also know about the perpetrators? Because in your, in your papers, I read uh, how prevalent uh, the non-consensual aspect is. So how many people self-selected and said that they shared someone else's non-consensual image? Yeah, okay. So um, just a couple of, just before I talk about perpetration, what we, we've, in our survey that we conducted back in 2016, 
um, of over 4,000 Australians aged between 16 and 49. We asked about both perpetration behaviours and also victimisation behaviours. And what we found was that across those three behaviours, the non-consensual taking, non-consensual sharing and the threats to share, the three behaviours, um, that one in five of our respondents said that they'd experienced at least one form of image-based sexual abuse. So that included one in five who said that someone had taken nude or sexual images of them without their consent. It included one in ten who said that their images had been shared or distributed without their consent with others. And it also included nearly one in ten, so nine percent, who said that someone had threatened to share nude or sexual images of them. Um, now, I do want to mention that this, this, these rates are likely to be an underestimate because they only include victims who've become aware that someone has taken or shared images of them. So the reality is, and we know this based on some other research that we've done, which was an, a digital ethnography back in 2017, where we looked at different websites on the internet. We looked at 77 different websites. And we found that while, yes, there were some websites that were specifically set up and tailored to um, as a form of humiliation and, and public shaming of, of victims where uh, websites were deliberately designed to encourage users to send photographs or videos of an ex-partner alongside their personal details, such as their name, where they lived, uh, their social media handle, and so on and so forth. So we knew, we, we looked at those sites, but we also looked at um, social media, we looked at image boards, we looked at uh, community forums, we looked at, array, at, at porn sites. And what we found was there were a lot of um, secret um, trading, s- secret trading practices of uh, nude or sexual imagery of victims who, have, who may have no idea that their partners or their ex-partners or other known or unknown persons are actually trading in their images online. So that just made us think that actually, you know, in our survey, when we asked about experiences, we're only getting people responding if they, knew, if they know that someone has taken or shared nude or sexual images of them. So I think that's important to note. Um, but we did, in terms of perpetration, we did ask our um, survey respondents to... Uh, to, to, to say whether or not they um, had uh, taken or shared or threatened to share noodle sexual images of, a, of another person without their consent. And we did find that, um, again, similar to the victimisation uh, findings, that one in 10 respondents in our survey said that, yes, they had engaged in at least one form of image-based abuse against another person so I think what this is saying in terms of our survey research is it's saying that image-based sexual abuse is relatively common across the Australian population yeah we have conducted um some follow-up surveys with in Australia New Zealand and the UK um so we did the survey last year but we're not yet ready to report on the findings of that but we will be doing that um early this year do do you think there's um do you think there's an awareness problem with um, image-based sexual, abu- sexual abuse? Do you think we need to um, generate more awareness about it? I do think. I think there's a. I think the the misconceptions, the victim blaming that we see in relation to image-based sexual abuse are actually quite similar to what we see in relation to sexual violence and sexual harassment, but also in relation to domestic and family violence. And that is where, particularly where the um, the perpetrator is a known person. And we've yeah. certainly seen that in relation to this behaviour. So just to give you an example where the victim survivor consents to a partner taking a nude or sexual photograph or video of them or where the victim survivor uh, takes it themselves and shares it consensually with a partner, for example, often those where the victim has played some kind of role in consenting to the creation or the sharing of that image to one person, that's where we see most of the victim blaming happening. Um, yeah. and, and that's a real shame because uh, there is a lot that's missing. There's a lot of uh, awareness needs to be created around the complexity of, 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 of those decisions. So I'll just give you a few examples here. So one is that, um, in domestic violence relationships or in coercive um, 
you know, relationships between people, the perpetrator might pressure the victim or coerce them into sharing nude or sexual photographs or videos of them. So this is also known as coercive sexting. Uh, so where um, partners, for example, are saying, if you don't send me a photograph or a video of you doing this, I'm going to break up with you. I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And so the victim feels coerced and forced into providing and sharing those images. So that's one aspect. In domestic violence, there can be all sorts of um, horrible things happening in tandem with the image-based abuse behaviour. So I think blaming the victim really can fail to uh, understand those contexts as well. But thirdly, even if there's no domestic violence and there's no pressure or coercion for the victim to take and or share the image with her partner or somebody else, the fact is, is that consent to one thing doesn't mean consent to another thing. So I'm just going to use a parallel example here in relation to sexual violence. So if, I, if, if a person consents to kiss or touch another person, it doesn't mean that they therefore consent to having sexual intercourse with that person. And I think that that's something that's often misunderstood, whether it's in relation to image-based abuse or whether it's in relation to sexual violence. And I don't know why. I just think that there's um, – well, I do know why. I think it's around um, – there's problematic views and attitudes and values around gender and sexuality. And I think it is very much premised on this kind of neoliberal model um, that, that is a masculine model that, that kind of sees choice and consent in very black and white terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think your parallel example is great because that's exactly how I see it. You, you give, even if, even if you're not being coerced into sharing an image and you're doing it out of your own will, you are sharing it with that person and you're not sharing it for circulation unless you know you explicitly want to do that and that's a different thing then that doesn't come under um sexual abuse but most of these cases well if you're talking about image-based sexual abuse we're talking about people whose images have been shared without their consent so how does that you know it's how how does that mean that you've consented to having it circulated and you know being threatened with um you know having to pay out money or having to you know do something else in returns or being exploited for it so I think that for me that just shows how far behind we are in terms of our awareness um with the league with with the digital spaces like we've just not been able to um talk about how sexual abuse happens in digital spaces and um we're still catching up and given how prevalent you know this this problem is become you know we still need to do a lot more work when it comes to that so what do we know about the law like we're talking about australia here so how does the law deal with image based sexual abuse in its different forms well the the laws in australia have um changed quite rapidly in the last 5 years so now we have 7 out of 8 australian states or territories that have introduced new criminal offences to address the non-consensual taking sharing or threats to share nude or sexual images there's only one australian jurisdiction that doesn't have specific criminal offences in place however that that's tasmania and but Tasmania does have some laws that are broader that could be used um, to prosecute an individual for engaging those behaviours. But we would argue that uh, it is important in the Australian context and elsewhere as well to have specific criminal offences designed to address this particular phenomenon because some of those more broader laws, um, you know, may not be, they, they might not apply, they might, the, 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 the wording doesn't capture the harms and so on. Um, Mm. In Australia, we also have a specific law at the federal level that was introduced in 2018. Um, And and that's also just, um, you know, another example of Australian laws um, taking action and recognising the serious harms that can result from image-based sexual abuse behaviours. We also have, so the other criminal offences, but we also, since 2018, Um, have a civil penalty scheme that was introduced by the Australian federal government um, to prohibit the non-consensual sharing of intimate images as well as threats to share intimate images. And under that scheme, um, the Australian Office of the E-Safety Commissioner 
has been given investigatory powers to administer a complaints and objection system that relates to image-based sexual abuse. So that basically means that if a victim has um, had an experience of image-based sexual abuse, they can report that to the Australian eSafety Commissioner Office, sorry, the Australian eSafety Office, which is the Australian Office of the eSafety Commissioner. And then that office can issue a takedown notice to an individual or to a corporation and they can require the removal of the image within 48 hours. But in addition to that, the office can issue a formal warning to users or um, corporations, infringement notices, or they can also um, fine individuals up to $105,000, that's Australian dollars, or they can fine mm-hmm. corporations up to $525,000 Australian dollars. So it just, it just is another avenue, I guess, for victims who may not want to go down the criminal justice pathway because that is not a good option for many victims of image-based sexual abuse. But of course, we would argue that it is. it should be an option on the table. It should be because for some victims of image-based sexual abuse, that is the, the best way for them to pursue justice is through the, the criminal pathway. Yeah, yeah. But what you said that they can um, ask for the circulation of the image to be stopped, I'm just thinking that if that image has already been circulated, if that, you know, the perpetrator has already sent it to even one person and that person's perpetrated and like, I don't even actually know in how many different ways images can be circulated today and, you know, they can be copied and reshared. Um, that just seems like one way of sort of um, stopping the damage. But does that sound like the most effective way? And is there one like can can the law really stop circulation once it started? No, no. I mean that's a you know that's the problem that that I think you've yeah. really clearly identified is that the law is a reactive response. Whether that's the criminal law, whether it's prosecuting and punishing somebody who's engaged in the behaviour, or whether it's the civil penalty scheme or another type of civil law um, that that also Um, has some kind of remedies in place to provide compensation to victims or to have the the images removed, or whether even it's um, a less kind of legal approach uh, where, for example, in Australia, victims can contact the Office of the eSafety Commissioner, they can make a report, Um, the the eSafety Office can help victims to contact digital platforms to request that those images be removed from their sites. These are all these are all reactive responses. These are, as you said, trying to limit the damage of images being circulated without consent, for example. And unfortunately, the only real way to prevent it from happening in the first place is actually through education. And I think that's where, you know, we do have laws in place and that's great, but I think the resources and the focus should really be on how do we how do we create a culture of consent? How do we and how do we endorse and foster digital ethics and, and, and respectful relations in online spaces? And I think, yeah, once an image is out there, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to prevent it spread to potentially millions of people. And I know that sounds scary, but, you know, that is the reality. Um, there are things yeah. that can limit the damage. Um, but really what we should be focusing on is, is trying to prevent it from happening in the first place through through education. For sure. And what you said, digital ethics, I think that's so important to um, to emphasize because, I mean, I think of India and most people here have a phone, like, um, you know, even people who belong to um, a strata of society that wouldn't be earning very much, even they have access to phones and um, with you know how cheap internet has become in India and how so many different models of smartphones have um, come into the market it's not expensive to have a smartphone now and to have access to the internet which is great you know it's amazing it sort of democratized the internet as it should be but then you know these things that you you have you might have a camera phone but you can't go about taking images of just about anyone and especially you know using those images to extort them that's just not 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 just is it not ethical it's also illegal like I think that awareness and the damage it can cause really needs to be 
to be uh, stressed upon but i also think of how difficult that would be you know in a society yeah. like you to talk about and to actually explain explained to people and to people who still think that oh if a woman is walking on the street alone and she gets raped then it was her fault in some way to actually sit down and be like in non-consensual image sharing is also wrong on every level so that is also something that can ruin someone's life and you know ha- cause a lot of damage so we need to talk about that as well so how do we do it how do we um tackle this problem i mean um do you, do you have any uh, solutions that you've looked at yeah look it, it is a big problem and i think um you know some of the basics um i think you you mentioned this really well before is that women are still being blamed for wearing a short skirt or walking down the street late at night if they're raped and so there is a bit of despair there, you know, if, if, if those attitudes are still holding sway amongst a significant proportion of the population, what hope do we have in terms of not blaming victims of image-based sexual abuse, particularly victims who, uh, you know, send, consensually send images to a partner who then goes on to share that? I think that we are up against some really problematic attitudes that are very difficult to shift, not impossible, but are very difficult to shift. So that's that's important, but also in relation to women's sexuality, I think this is where this is why um, this is such a powerful tool of abuse, harassment, and control and violence. Because in most countries in the world, um, women's sexuality is still shrouded in taboo, and there's certain expectations around what women can do sexually. And I think that definitely plays a role in this, and that's why again, it's why, such an effective tool of, of um, for perpetrators. But it doesn't mean that we should just um, throw our hands up in despair. I think um, we, you know, I think things, there are some things that are changing. I think uh, I've certainly seen in the time that I've been doing research on this topic, um, starting in about 2012, I've noticed there has been a significant shift. So it's not, um, I mean, this is all anecdotal, I don't have, necessarily any kind of um, empirical research to back this up but I have seen a shift in attitudes in the media seen shifts in attitudes among police and among um, practitioners seen just a shift in in attitudes now uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have a long way to go I think I think there's other questions that need to be asked around sharing non-intimate images of another person without their consent and I think we are seeing a shift there as well if if you um, now, when I go to an academic conference, for example, often there's a question asked about, you know, you can wear a sticker, if like a red sticker, if you don't want your photograph taken while you're at the conference, or you can wear a blue one if you're happy for photos to be taken, and so on. So that the 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 the, the, the culture of consent around images per se, right, not just necessarily intimate images, we are seeing some shifts there, but I still feel like um, there's certainly a lot of um, times when I'm presenting at a conference or I'm presenting at a public event where people do take photos of me and they post them on Twitter. Now, these are not intimate photos, they're professional photos, and I don't really care. But I don't really like people just randomly taking photos of me either. So that's not a, that's not a legal issue. I don't think that should be illegal for someone to take a photo of me while I'm presenting at a conference and post it on Twitter or post on some other kind of social media. But I do think there's a there's a debate and the discussion that we need to have around what what you know who who owns and I just I don't mean kind of legally but I mean who 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 is the owner of a photograph or a video and uh, what kind of ethics what what do we owe each other in terms of circulating those images is it okay to do so I don't have the answers to that but I think there are some of the discussions that we need to, to have because that will shape how we view the, sh- the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, um, whether they're of an, you know, a, a, a public figure like a politician or a celebrity. So there, there is a long way to go, but I think it can happen. And I think a lot of it's around gender and sexuality, but I think some of it's around just our visual culture. I think we're really at the cusp of, you know, we've, it hasn't been that long that we've had smartphones that can take photographs and then with an easy click can be uploaded onto social media or sent to another mobile phone instantaneously I mean, this is all kind of relatively new in the kind of history of yeah. the, the 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 camera and so mm. I think I think there's still uh yeah there's a lot of grappling around 
how, you know, how do we how do we navigate this? How do we navigate this visual culture? I think there's a lot of, um, I think voyeurism is a really interesting thing. I think with reality television and um, pornography, the the kind of, I guess, um, yeah, I'm thinking about voyeurism in a more colloquial term as opposed to a um, psychological disorder. But I think there is obviously people are wanting, you know, authentic images that they wouldn't get in mainstream porn and I think again there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done around understanding pornography and pornography consumption and, mm. and how that ties in with these non-consensual themes. Definitely, definitely. I mean I was I was thinking of that of how you know porn is such a big part of you know this debate like how a reason I imagine why people share uh, images without the consent of their partners or you know unknowing annoying people is because they can sell them on the internet or they can make profit out of it and those images then find their way to websites and um so that needs to be regulated in itself yeah but um this this thing that you said that you know these things are relatively new that a cam in the history of a camera this makes me think that you know the twitters of the world and the facebooks and the apples and all these big technology companies that are doing all these innovations and um you know coming up with different ways in which we can share images faster and uh, share video images and all sorts of gifs and all of that and how it's it also comes down to them if you're coming up with a you know with an innovative way of um transferring data and um you also need to figure out how you're going to you know how are you going to deal with issues like these and how you recommend that because it seems like once a new social media platform or a, a new um sharing website or platform comes in it takes the law a few years to understand it and you know to see the damage and then um like you said to curb the damage so i i think there needs to be something that the company that's making the this technological advancement that they need to do Mm. Any thoughts on how we can get them to be accountable? Yeah, so I've I've talked about the law, I've talked about criminal law and civil law responses, and I've said that they're important. I've also talked about uh, education, and and really that's kind of the number one kind of important thing if we want to prevent it from happening in the first place. But I haven't yet mentioned the role of digital platforms. Um, I think digital platforms and digital services play a really important role in addressing image-based sexual abuse. These platforms and services need to work proactively to ensure that their policies and practices for for image sharing, for content removal, for um, punishment of users for um, breaching you know their certain policies, um, they need to be robust. They need to be efficient. They need to be effective. And this this landscape is changing. It's rapidly changing. Only recently, um, last week I think it was, or the week before, Facebook announced that it's now banning deep fake pornography on its platform facebook has what also so deep deep fake pornography is the use of uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence um, to construct a realistic um, fake pornographic video and um, it's a, a really big problem um, it's an emerging problem there are um, in the last kind of year there's been so there's been a massive increase in deep fake pornography mostly of female celebrities um, but it, mm. it, it it's different to um, the kind of previous techniques of the past because artificial intelligence or machine learning is becoming increasingly sophisticated in terms of being able to create a realistic pornographic video. So a person's face, um, like a celebrity, for example, who hasn't performed in the, the sexual video, their face is actually stitched on to the face of a pornographic, it's replacing the face of a pornographic mm. actor to make it look as if they are performing in that, that, that pornographic video. And mm. so that, that I guess what we're seeing is like there's, a, there's new behaviours that are happening, deep fake pornography being one of them, new trends that are starting up. And the governments and digital platforms are scrambling to be able to respond to these new these new phenomena or these new patterns of behavior. And just an example would be of last week or the week before of Facebook announcing that it's now going to ban deep fake imagery from its website. So deep fakes it doesn't, isn't just about deep fake pornography, so it um, also can be used for political purposes. 
So, for example, mm. it could make Donald Trump um, look like he's saying something when he didn't say it because his face could be stitched onto the body of an actor. Oh, so, I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, most deep fakes are pornographic um, of female celebrities. But that's just an example of, I guess, the digital platforms are, you know, are responding. Um, you know, there's always flaws in the way in which they respond. Uh, you mentioned before about the money-making imperative. Um, that certainly is one of the overarching problems of, of um, uh, image-based sexual abuse because these websites are profiting from the non-consensual sharing of nude or sexual imagery. So um, that's a really, that's a big challenge, I think, um, the, 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 the profit imperative. But the digital platforms, you know, I think the other thing that we are seeing is we're seeing a, a shift towards greater regulation of those digital platforms for so greater accountability. For, for, for a long period of time, you know, they've increasingly been gaining in power, the digital platforms, the social media, like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat and so on. Amazon, you know, all sorts of um, digital platforms have been increasing in power in terms of almost um, yeah. kind of not just financially but also kind of politically and what they're able to get away with. But then we have seen some really kind of turning points in terms of like the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand uh, last year in March where uh, they perpetrated a live stream, the murder, um, those murders in the mosques in Christchurch. And that's kind of pushed governments to uh to take action and to kind of wake up and say actually do we really want these digital platforms to have so much power and for users to be able to use them so freely that they are able to get away with this kind of behavior and i think you know we'll see we will see greater movement in that regard and and so we should i think the digital platforms should be playing a role in uh responding to image based sexual abuse when it occurs but also in designing innovative mechanisms to prevent it from happening in the first place yeah yeah this this example that you mentioned of um you know this this case where you can morph a celebrity's body uh, a celebrity's face onto a porn star's body and um, it's used for political reasons as well it reminds me of this case in india where it's this really young fearless journalist who wrote extensively about the establishment about the home minister that's how she was retaliated against people circulated a clip uh, uh, this this fake clip of hers and you know it was used as a way of shutting her down but of course you know she she retaliated so she didn't um, that wasn't successful in silencing her but that's the kind of pressure that young women can face when they're trying to speak out and they're trying to you know just carry on with their work yeah so yeah it's really you know it's quite disturbing i mean we there was the promise, the internet promise, this kind of freedom for women and, and other minorities to be able to assume kind of like anonymous identities and genderless identities and like a, a gender kind of equality, a democratic space. But unfortunately, you know, the, the, the kind of same problematic attitudes around gender and sexuality continue to pervade um, contemporary life and, you know, have, you know, the examples of, Technology facilitated abuse, including image-based sexual abuse, are certainly examples of um, you know those same problematic attitudes and behaviours continuing out in a different space, essentially. And I think I want to go back to what I said about you know India and um, the number of people who have access to internet now, and it also happens to be a lot of people from low-income backgrounds. And when I said that, I didn't you know I I, I realized that it's very easy to say that oh it's only people from low-income backgrounds are committing these crimes, which is Mm. not true at all and also you know very bigoted argument to make what i was trying to say is that the access to internet has widened to include people from low income strata as well that was just to emphasize how um access to internet has widened uh, um, but i just wanted to oh uh, i didn't i didn't even take what you said as meaning that by the way so don't worry um i think i think your points i think your point was that yeah that that there is widespread access there is um, there is normalization amongst across all um, ages, across all genders and sexualities and um, races and ethnicities and socioeconomic demographics where um, people do have access to 
to the technology and um, unfortunately uh, we'll use it unethically or illegally. Um, but I think, I think there is a normalisation too. I think, you know, we, the people with the access to this technology are seeing images of celebrities taking intimate photos of themselves and putting on social media. And I'm not saying that's wrong, that that's, you know, that's a kind of selfie culture, but it does, yeah. it does play into ideas for some people that it's okay to share images of another person without their consent. And I think particularly among young people where all their friends are, are doing it, all their friends are, you know, getting photographs of their girlfriends or videos, and then they're sharing it with each other. When that's happening in that, in that peer context, and again, regardless of socioeconomic or other demographic variables, um, that's really hard to shift because there's not that culture of consent that's been created within that peer group. And that could be because the education's not reaching the, the young people. It could be that the education's focused on a kind of anti-sexting model where there's a similar to kind of drugs and alcohol where the message is don't take drugs, don't take alcohol and don't have sex. And I think the mm -hmm. message is often um, directed around images to young women and the message being don't take and share intimate photos or videos of yourself and share them with your boyfriend because you don't know where they'll end up and I think that that message can actually be quite dangerous because it's a it's an wow. abstinence message rather than a okay let's 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 see how we can do this safely let's see how we can respect each other and so I think yeah. um I think that's really important I think the message needs to shift in educational programs around sexting and sexuality yeah. And yeah, uh, I, I don't know if, how much difference it would make, but I think it would make some difference. Definitely. And you found that uh, in your studies, you found that most um, most victims, as to, so as to say, happen to be women, even though, you know, men and um, trans people also are deeply affected by this. But most victims happen to be women and most perpetrators happen to be men. Is that is that a right way of putting it? No, well, actually, it's quite interesting. In our 2016 survey, we actually found that men and women were equally likely to say that they'd experienced um, image-based sexual abuse. And that was a bit of a surprise to us, just given what we knew about, like, if you go online and look at the websites, whether it's porn websites, social media, community forums, and so on, you do see that it's very gendered. So I think, um, I think what that is saying is that yeah, um, men are also victims of image-based sexual abuse. Um, it's also about their gender and their sexuality. It might be, um, there might be different impacts. Um, I guess across all forms of image-based sexual abuse is some people, if you think about a spectrum of harm, some people at one end um, are suicidal or they might take their own lives and there's certainly been lots of cases where that's happened. Um, a number of cases in Canada, for example, where young girls had been raped um, those that they've been filmed, the, the sexual assaults have been filmed, the, the films went on the internet and then they suffered horrendous online abuse and harassment from people who'd, who'd seen the videos and then they went on to take their own lives. So you've got that kind of extreme end, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, you've got massive anxiety and depression, you've got a whole range of quite severe and extreme impacts on the one, on the one end. But then on the other end, in relation to image-based sexual abuse, you've got people who are not that worried about their images being shared without their consent. So they might be annoyed by it. They might be irritated by it. They might even think it's funny um, that someone has, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to use an example here, um, which is a, a bit of a crude example, but a group of guys in a, in a, in a changing room after a sports game and they're all taking photos of each other, um, having a shower. And then they're sharing those images. Now, those people in our survey would say, yes, someone has shared a nude or a sexual video or photograph of me without my consent. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they will have suffered suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. It may be, it may well be the case, but it might be that they found it funny that their friends all shared those images on social media or sent it to women in their class or whatever or their friendship group. So um, I think that that discrepancy in terms of impacts, in terms of harms, um, helps us to kind of understand why we might see a similar rate of victimization among men and women. Um, 
And I think that's important to factor in. But I do think it's also important to note that men can be equally as harmed by image-based sexual abuse as can women. So there was a case, again, in the US um, where a young man was kissing his uh, another man um, and his roommate filmed him. And then uh, I can't remember if he, he, he shared, I think he shared the, the video on, on social media or threatened to. I can't quite remember whether it was the threat or, or he actually did share the video. And because the, the young man um, hadn't come out as gay, um, it was really, really traumatic for him. And he went on to take his own life. So you also have men who uh, are photographed or videoed um, you know, their the genitalia and they might have a hang up about that. And that could be, that could cause a huge, um, huge impacts for that person. So the fact that they're women or men doesn't, doesn't dictate the impact that they experience. Um, but I, I do want to kind of qualify that by saying, I think, you know, when we look at what's happening online, we look at all the secret trading of image-based sexual abuse content where women are not aware that their partners or their ex-partners or their friends or other persons are, are, are sharing those images. You know, if, if they were aware, we might have a different kind of story about gender and a different kind of there might be more women than men that are affected. Um, but one thing I just wanted to add a, around gender is that in, in our survey, we did find that more men than women reported engaging in perpetration of image-based sexual abuse. And that's certainly been mm. the case in terms of our interviews with 75 victim survivors is that the majority were women and the majority of perpetrators, they said, were, ma- were men. Yeah, I think you've, you've really articulated it quite well how, you know, it can affect everyone and it affects everyone. But women are more likely to be to really suffer because of this, to really suffer because of their rights being violated, as with any other crime. And, you know, the society that we live in, a patriarchal society, it's just skewed differently you know mm-hmm. I mean I like to I like to focus on what we can all do to tackle you know to tackle sexual violence and in this case what can all the listeners take away if they were to take away one thing that they can practically do to you know tackle and prevent and stop sexual uh, to, to stop image-based sexual abuse what would that be so I look. I think it would be around providing support and a non non-judge, non judgmental support is probably the most important thing. Now that can be if you're a victim survivor of image based sexual abuse that you provide that to yourself, that you don't blame yourself, that you um, are kind to yourself, that you seek out support, non judgmental support, professional support. Um, if you don't find the right support, that you look elsewhere because sometimes, unfortunately, even well-meaning practitioners, so counsellors and psychologists who don't really know much about this topic can actually be quite judgmental and can kind of say, oh, look, you know, you shouldn't have shared the image in the first place kind of thing. And that can actually, even though it can be quite well-meaning in that context, can actually um, be quite damaging to someone who has already engaged in that behaviour and it is a form of victim blaming. So I think yeah. the non-judgmental support for victims is really important. But I think that the, the bystanders and for friends and family and others who uh, can support victims. I think again that non-judgmental approach is really important. And I'm just going to kind of reflect very, very briefly on an interview I did with a victim survivor of image-based sexual abuse. It happened when when she was at school. It was her boyfriend who took a video of her. He shared it around the entire school. And um, I, I think we've got a kind of a number of um, uh, violations that happened. Not only did he breach her trust and um, massively breached her trust and it was a huge violation of her sexual autonomy and integrity and dignity that he engaged in but what happened afterwards was probably where the majority of the trauma occurred for her and that was that the boys at the school um, were wolf whistling at her they were propositioning her they were really sexualizing her but perhaps even more harmful, and I'm not really trying to create a hierarchy of um, who, who was more harmful than others, but I, I guess I'm just trying to say the kind of multiple levels and the complexity around this, but perhaps kind of equally as harmful, if not more harmful, were the girls and her, like her former friends. She lost all her friends at the school. The girls wouldn't speak mm-hmm. to her. They just shut her out. They didn't necessarily, not all of them said things to her. Some of them did. Some of them called her a slut. But I just, I was so affected by that, interview that I did with this woman 
because it just reminded me about the societal reaction and how important that is. So that's also in relation to sexual violence. So if, if a victim survivor has experienced sexual violence, that is horrendous. But if they can pr- get the support that they need, that's non-judgmental, that's not victim blaming, that really provides a kindness and compassion uh, that the perpetrator obviously didn't demonstrate, that can go such a long way to the healing and recovery of that victim survivor. And I think the same thing with image-based sexual abuse. If it, you've had that experience and you go and seek support and help, that you get the support that you need. And I think particularly for women that we, you know, we really do need to, um, we do need to provide that support. We shouldn't, you know, I think about those girls that treated the victim survivor that I spoke about as, as you know, ignoring her, um, not talking to her, calling her a start. That's horrendous. And I think my main lesson, or the main, not lesson, but the main message is really, you know, we we need to provide support to each other when these things do happen. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, if you are a person who is aware of how damaging non-consensual images can be, you know, not just in that they violate someone's rights, but also how they can be used, you also should talk to people about it, people who might not be aware. So, for example, your parents, you know, all our parents are on WhatsApp and on all these digital platforms and you know they might hear of a case and they might you know pass a very judgmental comment and um you know people are not conditioned to viewing sexting as a normal um you know as a normal part of a relationship or whatever like how how a younger generation might perceive it they might have a difference of opinion there but it's important to talk to everyone and you know talk about how an image taken and shared without someone's consent is wrong and it's not the victim's fault obviously so i think we all need to keep talking about that and you know sort of flag that in our everyday conversations if that comes up yeah i mean look i i sometimes talk to people who i think you know that are that are kind of even working in this space or who are um you know feminist researchers and i'll you know and and we we end up talking about image-based sexual abuse and i'm actually quite surprised a number of people who they don't mean to be, you know, they just don't really understand, but they, they, they do revert back to that thing of like, well, why did she share the image of herself in the first place? Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. I think there does need to be some kind of intervention there where, you know, if someone we know in whatever context is saying something like that, we actually just remind them that, you know, that that is wrong and, and it does have an impact. And, and that's what I do. That's what I do in the work that I do. I, I, you know, I really try and, I guess, correct those problematic um, perspectives and, and viewpoints that we still have. But like when you're with your work, I mean, looking at all of this and looking at specific cases and all of that and doing it every day, how do you manage your emotional well-being with, um, you know, a, a heavy topic? You know, you're looking at victimization here partly and you're looking at the different damaging impacts of, um, of of image-based sexual violence so how do you uh, make sure that it doesn't drain your emotional energy yeah that's a really good question thank you I think that um it's I've uh, been researching the topic of sexual violence for the last two decades so I have had a lot of experience in managing emotions and managing juggling the kind of workload and the the difficult nature of that workload emotionally with um emotional well-being and 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 there's no easy answer sometimes it affects me more than I expect um I did do my PhD research and I've done a lot of research looking at wartime sexual violence so rape as a form of genocide as a crime against humanity and some of the content that I was exposed to during that research was really really intense and distressing and and did really affect me and and I guess when I started doing research around technology facilitated abuse and focusing on image based sexual abuse, I, there was a time when I kind of didn't. I thought, oh, it's not going to be that bad because I have you know done stuff around genocide and crimes against humanity, so I, I can cope with it. And then when I did some of the interviews with victim survivors, I did find that I was really affected by it, and I did find you know listening to the experiences really distressing in terms of just depressing that you know our society is still so it's got so long such a long way to go and I just felt so 
I, I felt really sad for some of these women who had had not only an experience of image-based sexual abuse, but many of them had actually also experienced sexual harassment and sexual violence as well and domestic mm-hmm. violence. So that was, that was hard. But I think for me, the main thing that I do is I really, I don't, I don't tend to work in the evenings or the weekends. And mm-hmm. I know most of my academic colleagues do. It's very rare that an academic will uh, just work during the working hours. But I think for me, that's really important is to have that work-life balance. And so in the evenings and in the weekends, I'm doing stuff with my family. I'm doing stuff with my friends. I'm out in nature. I'm spending time with my cats and my chickens. I'm in the garden I, 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 I'm really trying to connect to nature and, and to put it all into perspective, into perspective. I'm doing yoga. I'm going for runs. I'm, you know, I'm really trying to look after my physical and emotional health so that during the week when I am working on this topic, I have the resilience and the resources to be able to, to pull through. And you know, I, kind of, I know when I need to take a break during the week when I'm working during work hours, I know when I need to take a break. And I'm, I think I'm well experienced and after doing this research for such a long period of time knowing kind of intuitively when that break's needed and and um yeah it's it's not a perfect (laughs) it's not a perfect plan but um I think the the key challenge for me is is having people working with me who haven't been you know research assistants so um PhD students who haven't before been exposed to this type of material and just remembering you know, that I've got two decades of, you know, working at how to cope with this material. But, you know, for, for some people new to the area, I have to be very mindful of the impacts that doing research in this field has or might have on, on them. Hmm. I mean, that seems like a superpower, knowing when to take a break. That really <laughs> does sound like um, something that most of us don't really know how to. So well, well done on that. Finally, what can we expect to see from you? Are you going to keep looking at image uh, at image based sexual abuse, or are you going to look at other aspects of sexual violence, or you know, just step away completely? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. I'm that's kind of been worked out um, as I as I you know it's the beginning of the year, and I'm trying to kind of work out what am I doing this year. One of the projects that I'm finishing up on is a a massive project. It's um, a cross-country study between Australia, New Zealand and the UK. It's a huge team and we have a book that we're just in the final stages of writing. So the book hopefully will come out this year. Um, It's on image-based sexual abuse and it's based on the 75 interviews that we conducted with victim survivors. It's also based on the surveys that we did in Australia, New Zealand and the UK so reporting on perpetration and victimisation in relation to image-based sexual abuse. So that, that's a huge project that's coming up. I'm also working on an editor collection with a couple of colleagues looking more broadly at technology-facilitated abuse. So that's another kind mm-hmm. of big project. But then um, I'm also doing working on a project. I'm not leading this project, but um, one of my colleagues from RMIT is leading a project looking at digital platforms, providing anonymous um, reporting options to victim survivors of sexual violence. So I guess looking at the kind of, yeah, the, the, how digital platforms are used, um, well, not just digital platforms, but how anonymous reporting can help victim survivors. And yeah, there's a couple of, I, I look, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to keep doing more work around image-based sexual abuse, particularly around corporations and digital platform responsibilities. I think that's a really interesting area that I'm starting to do some more research on and hoping to get some projects up that are, that are looking at that. Um, but I would really like to do, I would, I'd like to keep doing the work around um, not only image-based sexual abuse, but also other forms of technology-facilitated abuse, and but also beyond that as well. So still looking at, uh, looking at kind of sexual violence and harassment in the context of universities, for example, and um, mm. focusing on there's a there's a group of us at RMIT who are, who are doing who are kind of doing a little bit of background work at the moment, looking at uh, sexual harassment and violence and um, gender inequality in the context of the STEM disciplines, so the science, technology, engineering, and maths and medicine. Mm. 
Um, so that's another project that's kind of on the go and, and all of those projects can be very busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm very curious, what are other ways in which technology can, you know, perpetuate sexual abuse? So other examples would be online sexual harassment. So um, where a person's being constantly asked, asked out online, um, it could be receiving unwanted pictures or photographs, videos of genitalia, so also known as dick pics. Um, it could be receiving hateful um, comments online in relation to gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, religion, um, also known as hate speech. And um, also another kind of uh, example of technology facilitated abuse is in domestic violence contexts where partners are uh, putting GPS tracking on a victim survivor's phone or another digital device and that, or that they've installed secret cameras in, in the house mm-hmm. to monitor them, to stalk them. That, that would be some other examples. And then I guess another example would be where, uh, you know, online dating sites where the victim meets someone online and then they meet up in person and they experience sexual assault. So that would be another example of technology-facilitated mm-hmm. abuse. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you for your amazing work. I mean, I and also talking to me because I feel like I know a lot more about um, image-based sexual abuse than I did before we talked. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for, yeah, for having the interest in my work and for all the amazing work that you're doing. And yeah, it was a real pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you. That was Nicola Henry and we were talking about image-based sexual abuse. Let me know your thoughts on this episode and the podcast in general. If you want to get involved, give me a shout. We're on Twitter, Facebook or send me an email. All the contact details are in the podcast description along with a link to organizations that support survivors in various countries. That's everything from me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am Asmita and this is Talking Research.